You're listening to a podcast from St. Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. All right. Welcome, everyone, uh, to this weekend away, Focus Weekend Away. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be here, by the way. I think uh, I was trying to remember with Adam and Patrice, but I think it was about six or seven years ago that I was last up here and doing some talks on the weekend uh, at St. Bart's. And uh, we've often had you in our hearts and minds uh, from Melbourne. We think you're an awesome local church and uh, uh, so important to the cause of the gospel in this part of God's own country. So a great pleasure and privilege for me to be sharing God's word with you now. And uh, thank you, Adam, for praying for our time together. Uh, If you'd like to open your Bibles, surprise, surprise, we're going to be in the book of Psalms and we're gonna begin at the beginning, Psalm one. In a while, we will have an opportunity to read through Uh, the psalm together. Uh, But by way of introduction, I thought I'd share with you that uh, a bit of Wei Han's practice. Uh, Every year, Wei Han chooses one book of the Bible to immerse himself in. Uh, And in 2023, that book is the book of the Psalms. Uh, Over the years, I found it helpful to choose just one book that I'm going to spend all year reading and rereading and I'll go to town and actually read the commentaries that I bought, bought five years ago but I've never read, you know, and really work through this one book of the Bible. Uh, I found that pattern helpful for me uh, because I, I long tried to get over the guilt of not reading the whole Bible through in a year. Have you ever done that? You know, you come to January and you say, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. And February comes along and you're stuck in Leviticus and you give up. Uh, I've done that about 20 times. So no more guilt. Uh, Try this practice. Just pick one book and go to town on that one book every year. And I want to encourage you to join me maybe in this next 12 month season ahead to make the Psalms your book. Uh, Read all the Psalms from beginning to end. Uh, Read them again and again and again. Uh, Maybe get a paper, actual paper Bible. Those of you who are younger may not have heard of such a thing. It looks like this. Uh, And get a highlighter and highlight your favorite verses. You know, go through them and highlight the verses that really speak to your heart and your relationship uh, with God. Uh, Learn to pray the Psalms after you've read them. Pray through the Psalm and make those words your words of prayer to God. And do that again and again. Uh, And if you do, I guarantee that it will transform your relationship with God for the better. For the Psalms are the God-given songbook and prayer book of the Bible, aren't they? It's the songbook and prayer book that Jesus used when he was a kid growing up in Joseph and Mary's household. The Psalms are on Jesus' lips all the time in the Gospels. The Psalms contain every expression of faith and prayer towards God. You know this, they're prayers of intercession, prayers of lament, anguish, pain, prayers of confession, of rejoicing, of reminder, of praise, and more. There isn't a single emotion or experience of God in the human life that the Psalms do not cover. You know, Tim Keller reminds us in his devotional book, which is, by the way, on your bookstore, his and Kathy's devotional volume, My Rock, My Refuge. He reminds us in his introduction that Martin Luther regarded the Psalms as a kind of mini Bible uh, containing 
all of the major doctrines of faith of the whole Bible all compressed into one book. And you've got the doctrine of Revelation uh, 19, we'll see that in our second talk, doctrine of God in 139, of human nature in 8, sin in 14, repentance in 51, and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. But yet, the Psalms are not a theological textbook, but a songbook, a hymnal. Uh, as you might note in the blurb I wrote for your weekend handout, uh, in times of pastoral ministry, what have I found? You know, when I visited older saints you know, towards the end of their lives in, in hospital, on hospital beds or in palliative care, you know, older, older saints who can't even maybe recognize their own children, but you start saying Psalm 23 and their lips move in unison. You start singing Amazing Grace and the tune comes out of their weak throats. So here's a clue that somehow God has made us to be a singing, praying people. Uh, theologians uh, say that what we pray and what we sing is actually what we really believe. Our actual practice theology is what we sing and what we pray. Not what we might have read out of a book or heard, you know, uh, Adam preach in his 39-week sermon series on the 39 Articles of Anglican Religion. I'm sure he's done that before, maybe not. Uh, you know, that stuff just, the propositional stuff just goes out of our heads. But it's what we sing and what we pray that lodges deep into our hearts. So the Psalms are meant primarily to be sung and prayed, not read and studied. Let me say that again. The Psalms are meant primarily to be sung and prayed, not read and studied. Nevertheless, we're going to do, be, do a bit of reading and studying to help us sing and pray. So do you ever run out of words to sing and pray to God? Well, come to the Psalms. Come to the Psalms. Uh, by way of planning for the church in the future, uh, one of my observations in reading up uh, for this uh, series is to note that for most churches, uh, you might do a little series in the Psalms as a kind of filler, you know, between the term break or over summer when you're trying to give a new uh, preacher uh, a bit of an early gig. But I wonder, I wonder if you've ever sat through a sermon series trying to take in the whole book of Psalms, 1 to 150. And that's three years' worth of sermons. Um, it's not easy to do. But actually, uh, probably a good idea if the Psalms are the songbook and the hymn book of the Bible. Here are 150 Psalms that God has somehow chosen to become part of the canon of His Holy Scriptures. You know, surely there must be some kind of collective overarching message that this collection of songs has for the people of God. Surely God has put the whole book together in such a way with such a spiritual function to point us towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that was really the question that exercised my mind as I came to the book of Psalms for the year. You know, what is the canonical shape of the whole Psalter? What is the, the singular driving purpose behind the collection of hymns and songs? Because surely it must be much more than just a collection of our favorite ones. You know, you and I know the favorite ones. 1 and 2, 23, 51 on a down day, 
73 when bad people are coming against us and so on and so forth. But what about the ones in between, the random numbers that no one ever quotes? What are they doing there? Well, our task this weekend is to dis discover together what that overarching purpose might be and how the Psalms fit together. Uh, which is why I asked what time we're stopping because we're going to go through all 150. And <laughs> no, no, that's not what I propose to do. Uh, here's what we're going to do. In this first session, we're going to hear from Psalm 1 and 2, an introduction to God and his king. An introduction to God and his king. In our second session, we'll look at Psalm 19, an introduction to God and his world. And uh, tomorrow, as part of our Sunday service, we'll look at Psalm 96, an introduction to God and his world. So God and his king, God and each of us in our next session, and God and his world tomorrow. All right, so you ready for the ride? Hope you're ready for the ride. Got your book open to Psalm 1. Uh, how is this whole book introduced? Well, I want to argue that it's not just Psalm 1, but actually Psalm 1 and 2, that together they form the joint introduction to the whole book. Together they provide the framework, the big picture that holds all 150 Psalms together. Uh, Christopher Ashe, in his commentary, usefully describes them in this way. Psalm 1, the good rule, and Psalm 2, the good ruler. The good rule and the good ruler. In Psalm 1, we have the good rule, the law of the Lord, the word of God, a supremely good rule for life, all of life. And in Psalm 2, we are introduced to the good ruler, the son of God, the king whom God has installed in Zion to rule over all kings and nations. So let's come uh, firstly to Psalm 1. Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. They are, like, they are like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will be destroyed. Well, what is it to be blessed? The psalmist says the true blessedness is two things. Uh, it's godliness and holiness. It's keeping away from wrongdoing. That's verse 1. You know, don't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Keep away from wrongdoing. But secondly, it's going towards something else. Verse 2, delight in the law of the Lord, meditate on it day and night. So keeping away from wrong and sinful people and things and moving towards God's word, meditating on it day and night. Uh, this is the stuff, stuff of Psalm 119, isn't it? The longest psalm in the Psalter is a paean of praise to the word of God. How shall, I, how shall a young person uh, keep his way pure? By taking heed thereto according to your word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I have not sinned against you. That's Psalm 119. So it's not by accident that the longest poem in the collection is an acrostic poem 
and a celebration of the good rule, the law of the Lord, the word of God, the Holy Scriptures. You know, when I was younger uh, as a Christian, I, I realized very quickly that I didn't have all the questions that my very smart non-Christian friends uh, had for me about why I was a Christian. But I was also trained uh, by my Sunday school teachers, who were all missionaries, right? Uh, they were tr I was trained by them to say, it's okay, I don't have the answer, but there is an answer. And if you give me time, I will go back to my church or ask someone older and wiser than me. I'll find the answer and I'll come back to you. Uh, so that was my basic evangelist, evangelistic technique all through my uh, younger life. And in some ways, I still use it now. Uh, engaging in conversations with people at your front line. And it's okay if you don't have the answer. And if you, it's okay if they object and you kind of go, I kind of agree with that objection, but let me just think about that. I'll, let me go back to church, ask Amy or Adam, and I'll come back to you with an answer because there is an answer in the word of God, in delighting, in meditating on God's word. There is true blessedness. Well, what will this blessed person be like? Well, we get a wonderful picture of this tree planted by streams of water, a tree with a, tree with a never-ending supply of what it needs, water and nutrient from the soil. It will yield its fruit in season. Its leaf will never wither, and whatever they do will prosper. The person with roots in the Word of God, who meditates on the Word of God, who orders their life, on the wisdom and grace that's found in the Holy Scriptures will be as this not only indestructible but fruitful and blessed tree. Uh, what a glorious vision. Uh, every time I read Psalm 1, I, I'm reminded of uh, the elderly Pentecostal pastor who mentored me through the 1990s. Uh, he's gone to glory now. Uh, his name was Jeff. Uh, Jeff was a World War II vet, and he'd, he'd live a, a fairly godless life before coming to Christ uh, as an adult. And when he came to Christ, it was as if um, he swallowed the King James Version of the Bible. You know, it was back in that day, in the, in the late 40s and 50s. That was the only English translation available. Uh, he was a pastor, he was an evangelist, he was a church planter. Uh, we, he told me many stories of life in ministry and suffering for the sake of the gospel, uh, as well as many joys and fruitfulness. Uh, but Jeff, Jeff had this really slightly eccentric habit. Every time he and his wife invited uh, Valerie, who was my girlfriend at the time, and myself to his home for, for a meal, we couldn't eat the meal until we had completed a recitation of Psalm 1. And, and it went like this. Someone would start, blessed is the one who does not stand in this way of sinners. Next person. <laughs> and you had, to, you had to know the line. And then the next person. And you go around the room. And you know what dinner is like when you're like 21 and you're coming? You're, going, you're counting the verses and going, oh, my line's going to be, oh, it's my turn. What? Uh, but it was just delightful. It was a delightful guy. Uh, but you can see what he was doing. He, it was a life that was completely immersed in the Psalms, meditating on the Psalms day and night. Um, another funny story about Jeff that illustrates the point of meditating on the scriptures day and night. Um, in the old days, guys, the younger ones, we used to have these things called telephones that were attached to wires in the kitchen, on the kitchen door. 
Well, uh, my phone would ring and I'd go pick it up from my, and I'd go, hello? And a voice would come down the line. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And you knew it was Jeff and you're going, he's waiting for the next line. <laughs> the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the and the sea that all that's in it. Oh yeah, very good. Hello, Jeff. <laughs> But that was his way of encouraging uh, me, and I think all the young people he uh, mentored, of whom there were many, to meditate on God's Word, to memorize it, to internalize it, and make it so much a part of uh, our worldview, our, the, way, the words with which we navigate the world. Anyway, uh, w- what an inspiration. Memorizing and meditating. Well, of course, we know that memorizing and meditating is best done through singing. Uh, as we've already observed, uh, psalms come to us as praise, as songs. And so one of the, one of the sadnesses I have, I think, in churches today uh, is the practice of actually singing the psalms and songs that have as their lyrics the words of the psalms have they been given to us. Uh, I have to admit that uh, my memorization of the psalms is not great. But the ones that, that I do have memorized are all songs, whether it's Handel's Messiah or some of the cheesy choruses that were written in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but one of the great things about the choruses in the 70s and 80s is they just lifted word for word, phrase for phrase, the words from the Psalms. And uh, it's been such a blessing in my life. So maybe something for you guys to think about as you expand your ministry. Back to this Psalm. Now, by contrast, Uh, Not so the wicked. They are like the shaft that the wind blows away. They won't stand in the judgment. Sinners won't stand in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So we have part one of the introduction to the book of Psalms. Stay away from evil, evil. Inwardly digest this book, and God will prosper your ways. You'll be blessed. You'll be like this wonderful tree, and the wicked, well, they'll just be blown away of no account. And immediately, the reflective Christian goes, well, praise the Lord, but is this really what the world's like? You know, really, we ask? Is, it, is, is that really what we see as the condition of our world today? Is Psalm 1 really an accurate reflection of the reality of our contemporary context? Or is our world actually more like Psalm 73? where the the wicked prosper and and they grow fat and they don't have a care in the world and they oppress others with the money and power that they have with impunity. Isn't our world more like Psalm 73 than Psalm 1? Jesus says in Revelation, doesn't he, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Psalm 1 is, is a beginning and an end. It's, it's a statement of fundamental reality, even though we can't see it and the world doesn't look like it at the moment. The wicked will not prosper in the end. They will not stand. They will be judged. They will be blown away like the shaft. But the godly who love God's law who read, mark, learn, inwardly digest his word, they will stand in the assembly of the righteous on that last day and worship him. 
forever and the Lord will watch over their ways, always. Uh, the wicked might look like they're winning for a season, but Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He will, verse 5, return to judge and bring all things to their true end. Meanwhile, beware. Uh, we have three children at home, Val and I, uh, two teenagers, one almost teenager. Uh, they're old enough now at those ages that Val and I can go out for a night out on the town, as we do. Uh -huh. uh, no, we don't really. We hardly ever. But we do from time to time go out and we leave them at home for a few hours and we say, all right, kids, be responsible. Don't game too much on the computers. You can watch one movie. Make sure it's G-rated, da-da-da. Don't eat up all the chips and chocolate and ice cream in the fridge. Leave some for mum and dad when we come home in a few hours. Um, of course, we come home and what happens? Right? There's no more chips, no more ice cream. You got you've got three kids too, don't you? Yeah, you know this. Yeah. And they've, you know, their eyes are all square because they've been on screens like for the whole time. Like, did they think we wouldn't notice or that we wouldn't care? Uh, let's just say when that, whenever that happens, there's consequences, right? There's a, a difficult three-week season with no ice cream in the house. That's very hard in our household. In the same way, many in our world today live as if there are no consequences for all the evil and living as if there's no God, no rules, no godly judgment to come, and the Bible isn't true and irrelevant. They live apart from Psalm 1, the good rule. Ultimately, because they do not acknowledge that there is Psalm 2, a good ruler to come. And it's to this good ruler that we come now in part 2 of the introduction to the whole Psalter. So part 2, uh, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The answer from verse 2 and 3 uh, it's because the powerful rebel against God. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the one. <laughs> Sorry, that's Psalm 1. You need to get, get ahead to Psalm 2. <laughs> Psalm 2, yeah. The rulers of the world, they're saying, we read in verse 2 and verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. They actively say, there is no God. What's with all this morality and the Bible and rules? Let's throw off those chains, throw off those shackles. The word is so limiting, so restricting. We'll do it our way. And so they do. Uh, Psalm 73, they get fat and prosperous. They use their power to persecute the people of God. You read that in Psalms 5, 6, and 7, and any number of Psalms to come in the early part of the Psalter uh, that describe so poignantly the plight of the people of God or the person of God in, in King David persecuted by those who live against God's good rule and God's good ruler. All the way, in fact, uh, to the pain of the people of God in exile, of which we read in Psalm 137 by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down. We wept. Why? Because of their sin, but also because of the persecution and sin of the world living apart from God's good rule. How does God respond to this sin in the world? Verse 4, 
the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So God stands over and above all the powers of the earth, all the powerful of the earth, and he laughs. He laughs at them. He rebukes them. He terrifies them. And he ultimately says, I have my king who is coming to rule. Please notice verse 6 uses the prophetic past tense, right? It says, I have installed my king. It's past tense, but it actually hasn't happened yet. At the time of the Psalter, we're thinking, well, is this King David? You know, which king is this who's going to rule and execute God's rule? As Christians, we know the answer to that question. But it's written in the past tense, and, and it's what Bible scholars call the prophetic past tense. It's when the Bible uses the past tense about something that hasn't happened yet, because it is a dead certainty that it's going to happen. It's so certain that it's going to happen that God can speak about it as if it's already happened. You know, it's the difference between saying, my football team will take the premiership this season, and being so confident as to say, my football team has already taken the premiership this season. <laughs> All right. Notice the historical particularity of God's king. He is a king installed on Zion, a king installed in Jerusalem, the city of the temple of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. It's just not any person from anywhere that God's going to randomly pick and say he's going to be, you know, the, the hero in the Marvel Universe and kick everyone's butt and we're all going to be saved kind of thing. No, it's a person emerging from the particular line of revelation and covenant and promise that Yahweh, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has made. And who is God's king? We learn, verse 7, that he is God's son. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. God's king, God's son, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will have all the nations as his own. He is the one who will come on judgment in that day and execute the judgment of which we've already read in Psalm 1. We see it in Acts 4, Acts 13, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, Revelation 2, Revelation 12, Revelation 19. All of those quote Psalm 2 with reference to to Jesus. King Jesus, great King David's greatest son, promised by the law, spoken of by the prophets, sung off now in the Psalms. We are to sing of this King Jesus soon and coming. The fulfillment of all of God's mighty covenant promises to Abraham and then to David. He will be installed in Zion. He will rule to the ends of the earth. He will crush all the nations that stand against God, like a rod of iron smashing clay pots. So what is the message here to the powerful of the world? Well, it's verse 10. It's be wise and be warned. Be wise and be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. He's coming. Order your authority and your action and your responsibilities in the light of the reality of the soon and coming king, the good ruler who operates and calls you to operate 
according to the good rule. Serve Yahweh, serve his son, serve Jesus, not yourselves. Kiss the son, verse 12. That is, worship him the way a subject might kiss the hand or the feet of their superior. It's kind of weak the way William just kisses kiss his dad on the cheek at the coronation. He should be, he's a king, kiss his toes, man. <laughs> Adore him, humble him, humble yourself before him. Kiss the son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, if you are not a powerful ruler in the world, be encouraged. Take refuge in Christ, says Psalm 2. Hear again the words of Psalm 1 and keep delighting in God's rule in the world. Be blessed in the terms of Psalm 1. But in the face of the challenges of living faithfully and Christianly in a fallen world, remember Psalm 2. There is a king who is coming. Take refuge in him, the word made flesh, Jesus himself. So here at last is the complete introduction to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. It is both the good rule and the good ruler. It is both blessed is the one who's going to keep away from evil and delight in God's word. They will prosper in the end. And it's the wicked will be judged and be blown away like chaff. And also in this world, the godless and powerful might look like they're ruling and winning for a while but the Lord Jesus will return in holiness and in truth. So be wise and be warned. Kiss the Son. Keep, keep living and working His way in His world. It is both live by the good rule and live under the good ruler whose kingdom is already now, but not yet as we await His return. Now, in a very real way, the rest of the Psalms, the, the other 148, merely unpack these two overarching themes. Now, I want to encourage you to keep that in mind every time you read a Psalm this year, or this weekend even. Any Psalm you pick up, ask the question, what is this telling me about the good rule or the good ruler, whose rule has begun but isn't, hasn't yet reached its complete fulfillment? Right. And, and we can practice this. Um, maybe we'll take a minute to practice this because I thought it would be fun, right? Um, this will keep us all on our toes a little. But let's just pick a psalm, any psalm. Pick a psalm, any psalm, you know, magic card trick. And let's work this exercise together, asking the question, what does this psalm tell us about the good rule or the good rule? Anyone? Just shout out your favorite psalm or the one you read this morning, if you read one this morning. 121. All right, let's turn to 121, an oldie but a goodie, a favorite. Uh, look up to the hills, from whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This would be a good psalm to memorize before lunch. Another one of my mate Jeff Davies' favorites. Well, 121 tells us that there is a good ruler who rules the world. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. 
He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So what does this tell us about the good rule of God, which is the word of God? This psalm tells us that God speaks to us through his covenant promises which are contained in his word, right? Because it's just not any old God. It is the maker of, he is the maker of heaven and earth, and he is the one who watches over Israel. Again, we see the historical particularity of the Psalms, which we can only understand when we read the good rule, the good book that describes the history of God's dealings with his people, uh, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and moving forward. He'll watch over us, will not be harmed by day or by night. He'll watch over all our whole lives, our coming and going now and forevermore. Uh, what a great promise from God that he is interested in our entire existence, potentially into eternity. There's a, there's a difficulty with the translation of forevermore at the end, uh, and commentators will argue, does that mean eternity or not? I think there's, my own view is, there are heaps of hints that are deliberately put in the Psalms to flag an eternal perspective. But the moment you read that, then you go, hang on, that is only achieved through the good ruler who alone achieves uh, salvation, redemption, and eternal uh, relationship with God. So there you go, there's Psalm 121. That was four minutes, not two minutes. Your bad way, huh? Uh, let me... Say a quick prayer because I want uh, you to go to small groups, but I also want to model to you how we sing the Psalms as well as how we pray the Psalms. I'm not going to sing because that would be unkind <laughs> to you. So let's pray using some of the words of Psalm 1 and 2, and then we'll go to small groups and you'll use your uh, questions in the book. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to look at the introduction to the whole Psalter. Please bless us, O Lord, and help us not to walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Please make us a people who will delight in the law of the Lord and who will meditate on it day and night. Thank you, Father, that you watch over the way of the righteous and your promise is to destroy the way of the wicked. Help us always, Lord, to kiss the Son, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for showing us with absolute clarity that he is the one you have installed on Zion. He is the one to be served with fear. He is the one whose rule we can truly celebrate with trembling. Lord Jesus, Come quickly with your rod of iron that you might dash your enemies into pieces like pottery and usher in your glorious fulfilled kingdom. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, Lord, please help us as we go into small groups and help us to unlock more of your treasure for us from Psalm 1 and 2. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast from St Bart's. To learn more or to take the next step, visit stbarts.com.au.